It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on B, uh, on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and today we're going to be speaking to Lewis Horn who is an entrepreneur. Australian-born but based out of Sweden, and we're going to talk to him today about his EV startup, Unity. Can you hear me, Lewis? Loud and clear. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us, and we always love to hear what's going on in the wild world of EVs. We've spoken to a lot of guests over the years, both on the development of new technology, but also talking about things like patents and also business models. So it'd be really interesting to hear your perspectives on all those things. Before we start, I'd just love to hear a bit a bit about you and your and your history. You you are an Australian based in Sweden. How did that all work out? I first came to Sweden in two thousand and nine. I was studying at Griffith University on the Gold Coast at the time, and I thought they were a little underrepresented in innovation and entrepreneurship. I thought you know that was a little important to learn how to look into the future, other than just learn you know by the book business practices so i i spoke to him about it and they said we'll send you wherever you want to go and then i googled around found sweden and yeah the rest is history so so what was it that you think separates a, a startup from say an existing business um, i've heard that the definition that a, a startup is kind of competing with non-consumption it's trying to create something a demand for something completely new is that a kind of definition you would go with or is there something more nuanced that you've discovered over time I mean, you're you're really kind of just starting a business. I don't know. It's a, a little bit of a buzzword. Sometimes we use the word company if it works better. Sometimes startup works better. Uh, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. I guess it's just something new, something with a lot of energy that uh, has a some kind of high growth and a innovative culture. I would say. I did a master of entrepreneurship at Lund University as well some years ago. So. I don't think we quite pinned down the answer there either. <laughs> well, if you can't do it there, then yeah, where can you? Uh, but the yeah, points you make about yeah, innovation, something new is obviously, um, I guess, generally well understood. And, and you have been involved in a lot of startup projects before the one we're going to speak mostly about today. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah. Well, I mean, after a, a pretty broad, broad background working in different companies around the world, I always wanted to do my own thing. Um, I always wanted to be free and I, I wanted to create a piece of the world myself. So I, the first really big startup I had was going to disrupt diabetes with non-invasive blood measurements uh, using your smartphone. It was a quite high tech, and the research ended up being too far from market. So I, I, I went to the New York Stock Exchange with that one and got a lot of sort of accolades. But I, I left that and I wanted to make sure the next big thing I did uh, was something I could understand top to bottom. I put a, a, a lot of uh, time into educating myself or preparing myself for that thing uh, and that time included starting a bunch of different companies everything from I mean I had a marketing company which did marketing for companies like Momondo and Uber and so forth 
but I, you know, I, I felt like I was just working out cool ways to sell stuff for people. It, it didn't have enough purpose for me. I had a lot of uh, social ventures, environmental related stuff, uh, different innovations. Um, I also started the Social Innovation Center of Lund University, uh, centrally funded by the university and also the European Union and some other national funding. Uh, the idea of that center was to provide innovation support to projects and startups and companies that had at their core the, the will to create a positive impact in the world, socially, culturally, or environmentally. So there's, it's kind of a new area. There's not a lot of support for it. There's a huge amount of support for every startup doing a you know, dating app or any kind of hyped gambling app or, or anything that's just pure commerce, but not a lot of support for people that want to do good. And then an extension of that here in Europe is the people that really want to do good often don't know how to use the economic tools very well. So I started a, an accelerator program, uh, also funded by the European Union for the next couple of years called SOPACT. And it's just a same hyped startup accelerator program. But the thing is, this one is designed, again, for companies that startups that address a social, cultural or environmental challenge as their number one goal. And a secondary secondary goal to make money uh, just for the purpose of scaling and, and growing the impact that they have. So, yeah, a, a lot of different crazy stuff. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of people who've developed dating apps who think they're having a cultural impact. But, you know, we'll leave that aside for now. But you know, I was really taken by what you said initially where you talked about being involved with a technology that you perhaps didn't understand top to bottom. And then, yeah, uh, you know, understanding it at the end of the process that it may not have been ready for prime time, as someone who yeah is not a technologist, but it would obviously be involved in technology and a lot of what you do. What have you learned around beginning to understand understand the technology you're working with and its maturity, and and how do you come to that understanding without going through the process that you did? Um, I, I would say uh, I'm a technologist. Uh, I'm a technophile for sure. I, I understand you know on a on a high level just about every technology certainly all the technologies that have a touch point with uh, unity uh, so yeah i i'm a technology enthusiast I, I worked my way through university as sort of an engineer doing fabrication work i done a lot of mechanical related uh, jobs in the past uh, I, I come from cattle station where you kind of have to know how everything works um, worked on the oil rigs and i don't know I, i've always been a technophile. I would call myself a technologist. I just chose to spend my time at university on economics or um, marketing and entrepreneurship and the kind of skills that can help me do something big other than just uh, make technology. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say I, I am an enthusiast. Okay, uh, sure. So um, you, you found yourself in, in Sweden and you spoke about a bit about the, the, the cultural differences uh, between the countries. Um, what, what was first struck you when you were there in, in terms of its, its attitudes towards entrepreneurship and those kinds of things? Yeah, very, I, mean, I mean, it's very hard to compare the entrepreneurship cultures of Australia and Sweden because I, I didn't do a lot of it back home. Uh, here, I've been plugged into it from day one. So yeah, it's a broad community they they have a lot of support different financial support they're you know a lot of different competitions a lot of a lot of attention they get a lot of attention the entrepreneurs here in, in Europe they, they put a lot of focus on it and do you find that in terms of being able to find people to to work in that kind of environment that there is a lot of uh, engagement in terms of you know people 
not wanting to leave home or leave leave school and just go and get a job, but wanting to be involved in something like this? Yeah, I, I think that's a generation thing. I mean, par- partially it's because here in Sweden, there's a pretty good quality of life. So people have, you know, they're, they're not, you know, if you remember Hofstede's uh, hierarchy of needs or you know, whichever, whichever researcher Mas- Maslow. it was. Maslow, yes. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's, that's right. Uh, they're, they're kind of looking more for the, it's a purpose-driven generation, I think. They're looking for a little more than just having a job. I think when I first graduated, it was about, you know, I need the validation of the logo of a big company on my chest. But I think this generation now is looking for a whole lot more purpose in their life. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great time to have a really strong message that attracts a lot of people. Okay, and then in that context, you started this EV company called Unity. That's spelled U-N-I-T-I, EV. Tell us a bit about the origin of that. Yeah, okay. As said, I I founded the Social Innovation Center at Lund University with some colleagues, and I was running that at the time as well as a lot of other different companies and stuff around the place. And I've been quite vocal on, on some big new trends popping up, and I was always quite vocal about Tesla and some of their strategies and what they were doing and why they were doing it and what the impact would be. And I was always quite excited about it. I felt ready to do something big again in, in my life to, to sort of cut off everything else I was doing and focus on one big thing. And then uh, people in my network just started saying, you should do an EV, you could pull it off. And then, yeah, I went to the university and said to them, I, I think there's an opportunity here. I think I can pull this off showed them the problems that I wanted to address, which were similar problems to what we were supposed to be doing at the Social Innovation Center, radical innovations that address grand challenges. Uh, I I wanted to do something more than what I was doing. I showed it to the university and they said, great, you can do it as a research project for a while until you're ready to spin off to a company. And that's what I did. So I ran that until, sort of as a research project until January last year. And we spun off to being a, a startup. And then, yeah, we just completed our first year as a startup now. You, after that, of course, that initial funding from the university, you went out looking for some crowdfunding and got some incredible support. What was your experience of that model of, of looking for cash? First of all, I have pretty strong views on startup financing. Um, I have some pretty strong pain points of my own from things that I've learned over the years. I mean, more than anything, I see... Uh, so many entrepreneurs and startups that have to design their their startup to appease or, or to suit the, the desires of a certain venture capitalist or, or something like that, instead of designing it all to solve the problem or to achieve something. Because a lot of these uh, funding sources are looking for a very specific thing. The idea of crowdfunding, the advent of crowdfunding, I think is one of the most powerful uh, social movements of our time. Uh, crowdfunding now has a, there's a greater amount of crowdfunding in the world than there is venture capital, in fact. Wow. Um, and the particular kind of crowdfunding we did was equity crowdfunding, where people don't – it's not a retail platform like Kickstarter or something like that. You're not buying something in advance. You're, you're backing the company, so you're getting a share in the company itself. Um, so for me, with you know coming from a social innovation background and also – wanting that we have an era where the people decide what companies exist and what markets exist instead of uh, money or large companies. I, I wanted that. I wanted to prove that that um, 
or I wanted to know that this this was a good thing for the world. Uh, that's why crowdfunding was the only option. We put together the story. We were very authentic in our approach, just showed really authentically the rough and ugly parts and everything, and then just put it out there to see if people would uh, back it or not. And we got we, – we only – promoted it for one day because we reached our target and went well over our target within the first short period of time. We ended with 570 investors from 56 different countries, uh, the youngest being 18 from Hong Kong and the oldest being 88 from Germany, uh, two complete strangers, uh, no gender specificity in it, no uh, geographical uh, specificity. We we even did uh, specific campaigns, one on a Facebook ad campaign, just so we could track how well the story resonates with really hard data. Um, and we spent an average of, for the Facebook campaign, we spent an average of 17 crowns per uh, conversion. So we had a, a little ad, went out on Facebook, people clicked through to the campaign page. Um, and 17 crowns gets you about like 10 or 15 clicks or something like that for a conversion to a uh, an investment of 500 euros or more. The most expensive country was Thailand. We, we spent 40 crowns there, which, sorry, that's about five five dollars Aussie right. uh, for the most expensive one. That was uh, five or six dollars. So five or six dollars is like 30 clicks or, or 20 clicks. What we were working on, and that got an investment of 50,000 euros. So it, it's just kind of a little empirical evidence as a foundation for the company to know this is a story that resonates around the world and it's a concept that can fit and the company values are something that people want uh, and I feel that's a, a great way to start a company Fantastic. instead of the traditional financing model. Absolutely, and it gives you a, a, a fair amount of autonomy, which is fantastic. We're on the Beyond Zero show, and we're speaking to Lewis Horn from Unity EV. He's an Australian based in uh, Sweden, and I can hear a bit of a, a hybrid accent. I always love to hear a bit of a hybrid accent. Well, you've obviously spent a lot of time there, and your your, your um, uh, accent is different to perhaps what it was before you left. I, I, it's very funny. Um, but I, I, I wanted to dig in a little bit more of what you were saying about uh, the alignment of values and getting people to, to buy into into something because they, they like the strength of the idea. So what were they buying when you, you, you put these ads up and said, this is what we want to do? What what were what value proposition were you putting forward to somebody? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, people, I mean, there's a vehicle concept that makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, it's a time on this planet where we need to need to make really bold moves, and that's what it was, a bold move, uh, a vehicle that makes sense, undoubtedly a, a large challenge. But, uh, uh, you know, we were very, as I said, honest and authentic in our approach to it. Uh, and then we kind of really expressed the values of the company. And I think, uh, you know, we were open, we were, we were passionate, we were, we were a little rebellious, and uh, certainly good. These were values we projected, and I think uh, values that people like to see and wanted to back. So, yeah, a, a combination of the appealing to the minds and the hearts, I would say. Okay, great. And um, we've, you talked a bit about a, a car that could work. And, uh, you know, the car industry is traditionally very capital intensive and uh, requires a lot of money to work. So what was it that was unique about your design that you think um, captured the imagination? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely expensive to make a car. Uh, they're extremely complicated machines. 
they have tens of thousands of little pieces of steel uh, that are all folded by very expensive presses that uh, the steel starts in mines, as you know, and it goes through its own life cycle and then goes through this incredibly complicated process. And, and the machine, the sum of all the parts is then driving around Sydney or Melbourne, uh, no faster than a bicycle with one person carrying no more than a bicycle quite often. So it, it really does not logically make sense that there wouldn't be an easier way. I mean, in a city, a bicycle is the best form of transportation that I've seen. But when it's not enough, I, I don't think an additional two tons of machinery is, is necessarily needed. So instead of starting by looking at let's let's build a new car that gets attention and, and, and slap the word sustainability all over it, uh, instead we look at what are the actual usage patterns, uh, you know, you know, why can I walk down the street in London and just find hundreds of cars in a gridlock all with one person, all pumping out emissions, knowing that more people die prematurely from vehicle emissions than from car accidents. And I'm looking at these machines also knowing with a bit of an engineering background, knowing that these machines were designed for the engineering challenges of the combustion engine, heat, friction, vibration, and so forth. And now we're just designing more machines along that, that path instead of really rethinking it. So what we've ended up with is a lighter, significantly lighter vehicle in a lower regulatory category. It's not a M1 car, so it's not, you know, the same vehicle category that you, that you have normally. It's actually a heavy quadricycle technically. It has some restrictions. So a 15 kilowatts is a maximum power it can have and 450 kilograms weight. But um, both of these fit perfectly in with our model. Uh, previously, the previous values that people competed in the automotive industry were like, mine goes faster, mine's bigger, mine goes 0.1 of a second faster, mine has a bigger motor, mine uses more gasoline, and therefore it's better. Um, so we just switched to a different set of values that say, no, I mean, even in electric cars, some people just driving through Sydney are not going to do 200 kilometers an hour, and they, they just don't need to carry around that much battery. Um, so we started by really simplifying it, by designing it for what their needs are. Of course, it can't be entirely rational. It does have to have some sexy, attention-grabbing, exciting tech, which it certainly does. But the vehicle itself is primarily comprised of composite materials. So that means instead of mined steel and so forth, it's, it's made out of different uh, composites, so hemp fiber, flax fiber, a lot of organic composites. Unfortunately, the properties of these aren't as good as carbon fiber yet, so we do need to use some carbon fiber. But the good thing about that is we can optimize, so we have it down to an absolute minimum while we're doing research to to try and solve the carbon fiber thing. It's it's just a couple of precursors that are that are carbon based. We, we're able to change them in the near future and just switch out the materials. And what you're left with is a manufacturing process that is light years leaner the machine still carries out the same tasks and in fact in many cases better with a higher performance because you know it's still the fastest car in the city from zero to 60 and your top speed is either 90 or 130 and you just don't carry more machinery than that it's got to get you there safely um, and yeah as I said the manufacturing part has to be really lean so we're putting together a manufacturing facility that's entirely automated. We won't even need to have the lights turned on for a large 22 hours a day. 
instead of the incredibly complex, incredibly costly current way of making a car. Uh, and we do know, looking at the the whole life cycle of, for example, a Tesla or a, a lot of the new electric cars, they are only fractionally better for the environment. Uh, it's great about the zero emissions. I think that's what they should focus on. They should say, right, we're, we're making your health better. We're, we're getting the smog out of the air. But I, I think it's a, a little misleading to say that they're sustainable because they're really only fractionally better, especially when you're carrying around a big lithium-ion battery and so forth. So, yeah, it's a, it's about attracting people to different values than the old automotive industry values, let's say. It's very interesting. But you spoke about the, the new process, and of course, Tesla is quite famous for really, you know, having the very same process, but effectively just changing the drivetrain. And, that, and they've been very, of course, effective in, in getting the speeds up and getting that 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 luxury appeal, which you, you you know you spoke about. And on the on the in terms of the materials, um, I think the is the BMW i3 is like almost entirely carbon fiber. So like the the expense that that, that is. Um, um, associated with that is obviously an impediment as well. So you've you've gone in a different direction. I'm interested in what can people expect. I have this look a bit online. Does it look a bit like a looks a bit like a smart car in the sense that it's a, it's mostly a two seater, or are you making different models? Yeah, to to, to some extent. Uh, just before we move on from the Tesla thing, we we got a lot of friends there, and they're a great inspiration for this entire thing. So I I just want to clarify when when they made that car and why they made that car the way they did. Um, if, if you actually look at an old Discovery Channel Tesla Gigafactory documentary, one of the designers says, we didn't want to make, we didn't necessarily want to make this car. We could have made a spaceship. When it's an electric car, you don't need the front. You don't need the back. There's no transmission. You can really rethink it. But they had to make electric cars legitimate. They, they had to make them credible. They had to make everybody excited by it. And if you design an electric car just for the really progressive crowd that weren't going to buy a a combustion engine vehicle anyway, you, you don't really create much of an impact. It's hard to move the needle. So they made it based on the old values. We compete with the old values and we win at the old values so that people who don't care about sustainability or or anything, they just want the fastest car, they, they buy it and it becomes legitimate and credible for them, uh, which really created the trend in the market and opened the door for companies like us to optimize a little bit more. And by all means, I really look forward to the day that some startups come along and, and make something significantly more sustainable than us. Uh, but this is just our our time in history, we think, uh, to make this kind of machine. And, and they've done, they've done the, the exact right part. I should also say 12 years ago, a lot of the technology we're using today, such as the, the composite manufacturing at this scale and this speed, just wasn't possible. It, it's only kind of three years that we've been even be able to do it. So... It's very new tech. Uh, There's some of the reasons. Uh, you know, they were always doing the best they could, and they they started the market for all of us. And <laughs> sorry, no, no, I just and, and it's, it's a very good point. And obviously, yeah, everything is 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 done at a particular time and uh, and for particular reasons. And yeah, they have been incredible innovators. I'm interested in the you know really only the five minutes we have left. With this conversations, you know, always go quickly on our show. But you, you are building a lot of autonomy features into the, the vehicle as well. I wanted to get your ideas on you know where you think that's going, and they, they seem to be these parallel tracks, a bit like I guess mobile phones and the internet that kind of merged into the same thing around you know 2008 or whatever. Um, 
autonomy and 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 electric drivetrain. Do you see those as two sides of the same coin, or could these things be developing in parallel and and not really meet for some time? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, uh, autonomy is difficult with a, a big heavy combustion engine vehicle. I mean, we we've been doing. You have a look at a little RC car. I mean, that, that's that's much better for autonomy. Significantly simpler system. Our vehicle's designed for autonomy, so we have a steer-by-wire system, meaning it's not a mechanical linkage between the driver and the road. It's an electronic signal that's that's quite uh, novel uh, in the automotive industry. It's been around for a long time in fighter jets and, and everything else. But it not only does it mean we can reinvent how you interact and operate the machine, but it means it's designed for autonomy. The entire thing is just much simpler for autonomy. It's in a lower regulatory class, also make it easier for autonomy. And then our approach to autonomy is quite different to what you've probably seen on the internet, where they talk a lot about the ethical problems, what happens, you know, does the car hit a trolley or does it hit the bicyclist on the side of the road? How does the AI decide and so forth? How do we navigate a family in a big premium sedan through New York City in the rain when a little girl runs out on the road? These are very difficult tasks uh, going for full-scale autonomy. We're just looking at solving individual pain points. And there's really simple ones to solve that are really huge. The main one being cars are parked 96% of the time. We make 100 million new cars each year. And 96% of their lives, they're parked until they end up on a trash heap. So solving that is is significantly simpler. If you don't have somebody in the car, if it's just delivering itself somewhere, and then you make the car awesome to drive so people can jump in and drive it, um, you can start to address those really obvious problems. Another one is, is traffic jams. I mean, there's it's really easy to solve traffic jams today with currently mature technology that's to be honest in the open source community so we don't need traffic jams anymore these are simple pain points we can solve and that's what we're that's our approach to autonomy fantastic fantastic well in the uh, couple of minutes we've got left then I'd, I'd like to maybe talk a bit about the market implications for what you're talking about you know, our car sits idle for 96 percent of the time because it has a single private owner most of the time you're building in autonomy features. You're also at a lower class and we'd be built around lower range trips. Do you see this vehicle as something eventually that will be owned privately or do you see it more as a shared vehicle in some, in some respects? I mean, it, it could be owned privately. I mean, I've looked at a lot of different models. I think a great model, though, is to say I buy it privately, but I'm in a, a really built-up area. I load it into an app where others can use it nearby. You know, maybe I've got the, the, the garage with the parking induction charging or, or something like that nearby. Uh, and other people using it subsidize the cost of the car for me. So so maybe it, it doesn't end up costing me anything or maybe I even make money off of it. And everybody else using it only has the vehicle on demand as they want at a lower cost. So the end result is a lower cost transportation for everybody. It may perhaps an even higher degree of convenience and obviously significantly fewer cars in the world, which is what we need to do. We need we need less people owning cars. <laughs> we need to change that culture. Um, less cars in the world, less cars, car ownership and cars on the street. It could also be owned by the state or they could be community owned or something like that. Um, but in order to reach the masses quickly, it has to be simple, it has to be really, really simple and have a, a good payoff for everybody. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's really it interesting. And, and I, I think if there is one country in the world where these cars could be owned by the state, I think it would be Sweden. I, I, I'm not sure if that's something, the first thing that would come into a mind for an Australian government. But um, I, I'm really interested to see how these things would uh, develop over time. And uh, I personally have used one of those um, peer-to-peer car sharing services where I've borrowed someone else's car. And it, it's fantastic. You know, if it's, it's, if it's in the area, you can effectively think of it as your private car that you get to use occasionally. So it's a really interesting uh, business model as well um, we're almost out of time so thanks for joining us lewis yeah thanks for inviting me on here and uh, really thanks a lot for the work you guys are doing uh, spreading all this stuff it's great to hear that this stuff's happening down in australia i don't know if it was happening when i left there so much uh, part of part of why I- <laughs> oh well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, we we've got a lot of um, uh, obviously a lot of resources, so we should you know natural resources, so we should uh, make use of them. Thanks for speaking to us. If people wanted to find out more about the Unity EV, where should they go? Uh, yeah, they can look on unitysweden.com or for sure go on any social media. So you can just type in Team Unity, T E A M U N I T I. Any social media, you'll find us on there: Instagram, Facebook, we we or YouTube as well. We like to be really open with what we're doing. It's also very atypical. Instead of keeping it all secret, we just show everything. Make sure people are involved with it and we can get their feedback and build the best machine possible. So, yeah, check us out on YouTube or social media. Fantastic. Yeah, I have seen a few of those YouTube clips and they're, they're very entertaining. So thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, though. Thank you. Um, you've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do, visit us online at bze.org.au. My name is Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all areas. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.